God's blueprint for relationships. And last week, uh, we looked, about, looked at uh, the foundation, and this week we're going to be looking at being Christ-centered. We're going to start our relationship goals here this week. But let me encourage you to open your Bible up to Genesis chapter 2 and also Matthew chapter 22. That's where we're going to be uh, looking at today. And our principle is this. Our relationship goal is to make our relationships centered on Christ. Our relationship goal is to make our relationships centered on Christ. Now, last week we looked at the foundation, and we went all the way back to Adam and Eve, back to Genesis, because I wanted you to get to understand what God's idea of a relationship was, what God's idea was marriage, of marriage was. And so we went right back to the beginning to have a look and see what God has for us with the first couple here in the world called Adam and Eve. And so we're going to start back there once again here this morning. Because God created man, and he was still alone, if you remember from last week. He created the universe, created the heavens and the earth, uh, and uh, he created the animals, uh, he created all the plants, and then he created Adam. And Adam's standing out in the garden, and he's gone through, and he's named all the animals, and he's kind of noticed that, hey, it looks, it looks like uh, you know, they've got a partner, but I don't. And so uh, he was thinking about that probably, and then God came along in verse 18, and it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. How does that happen? Well, he tells you down in verse 21, we see the first surgery in the Bible. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And as he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. And Adam said, hey, look, no more messing around with these animals. You know, I'm tired of messing with these animals. I'm tired of playing fetch with a hippo. Now I've got somebody that's my companion, somebody who is of me, my flesh, and my blood, he goes to say. He's excited about this. Now this is my bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You can see his excitement here. And she call, she, she'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Here we have the perfect relationship, right? The perfect relationship. I mean, you think about it. When God created everything, he said it was perfect. When God created Adam and Eve, he said it was perfect. And they are together. And it's perfect. Everything around them is perfect. I mean, there's no other body, there's nobody else there that they can be jealous over. There's nobody there they can have an affair with. I mean, this is the perfect relationship. And we look at that, it's like, oh, yes, man, we long for that, right? We want the perfect relationship. And we sometimes see photos in movies and either some other uh, couples, and, and they look like they've got it all together. And uh, we start to compare our relationship to their relationship. And uh, ours don't seem quite to be as joyous as theirs sometimes. Or maybe we'll see a couple on the train, and you have the older gentleman who will go and, and lift the lady up and, and help her out and the, the elderly lady, and they sit down together, and they're hand in hand, and they're just looking at you, each other, and you can see that spark in their eye. And we can sit back and say, oh, man, I wish I had that. Or maybe you see some couples come to church here. Last week, I got pretty excited. Um, man, we had several couples coming up the walkway there, and they were all in hand in hand. They looked like they were just madly in love with each other. It looked like they were coming down the aisle for the first time again. It was great to see that. And we look at couples like that, and we say, oh, man, wouldn't it be nice if we had that in our relationship? Young people today are so creative. I give it to you, young people. You are so creative. And I see 
all kinds of cool wedding photos. And mine, quite frankly, looked quite boring. You know, my, my, my marriage is not boring now, just the photos, right? Let me make sure I get that right. But uh, they're, they're so creative. Uh, look at some of these photos here. Here we have these guys that are hanging off cliffs. I mean, can you imagine that? Having your significant other and you're dangling her off the side of a cliff. I mean, that's trust right there, right? That's trust. You have to trust your significant other in order to do something like this. And notice the next photo here. This guy, he's doing it one-handed. Can you imagine the trust they have in their relationship in order to do this? And I got excited about this, and I told my wife, hey, honey, guess what? We need to go take a photo. Let's go take a photo. Let's go to one of these mountains. And she goes, what do you want to do? I said, hey, I want to show everybody how much love and trust we have in each other. I want to dangle you off the side of a cliff and hang on to you. And she saw that, and she goes, uh, I tell you what, I'll get you one off the Internet. Hence, we got photos off the Internet. But it's, uh, it's easy for us to look at that and say, you know what, I want that. I would love to have a relationship like I would love to have that kind of trust. But let's take a look at the same area. Let's, ta- let's look at it at a little bit different angle here. Notice this next photo here. That's taken at the same place. <laughs> it's sort of, I can hear the, the air just go out of everybody. <sighs> you know, it doesn't look exciting as it did before, did it? When you think she's hanging off the side of the cliff. And now look at it, you can almost stand there on the rock. But sometimes we do that. We look at other people, and we look at all these Facebook and Instagram photographs, and we say, oh, I wish I had that. But oftentimes, we don't see the big picture. Look at this next photo. Maybe this represents some of your marriages here today. Here's a lady just married. Got one flowers in one hand and hanging on to her husband the other, t- the other hand as they're hanging over a cliff. Maybe that represents your marriage today. Maybe you say, you know, we have that kind of love. We have that kind of trust in our family and our relationship that my wife would be willing to hang over the edge and let me hang on to her. Maybe that represents your marriage today. Maybe for some of you, this next picture represents your marriage. Man, if you could get your husband hanging off the edge of a cliff, you're going to be stomping on his fingers to get him out of there. Maybe that represents your marriage today. I don't know, but if you look at this next picture, this is what we long for. This is what we desire. Look how happy they are. Look at this lovely couple. Man, they are just enjoying life. And we look at that and say, oh, we want so much for that. We would love to have that in our relationship. And we see uh, pictures of these 10 kids that are sitting down for a photo and not a hair out of place and no stains on their clothes and they're all smiling and looking straight ahead. And we look at that and say, oh, the perfect family. I would love that. I'd love for kids to behave like that. I would love for that to be my wife. I would love for that to be my husband. And we long for things like that. But what happens when the cameras are off? I stand out in the parking lot sometimes and I welcome people and They get out of the car, and and they come, and they're smiling, and they shake my hand, and they're happy to see me, which does great for my self-esteem. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to see that they're excited to see me. But as they come out of the cars, I I, I wonder sometimes, I wonder what happened before they came into the parking lot. I wonder what happened before they got in the car to come home when they were getting ready for church. I can't speak for them, but I know what it was like in my family. Whenever I was a little kid, me and my brother and I, we used to fight all the time. Every time we got in proximity to each other, we were always fighting. 
And it went on a lo- very long time. And one day I remember we were going to church, and I don't know what happened, man. We, I don't know if we were fighting or what, but we got into it. Somehow we ticked my dad off, and he was livid. And he pulled up to the church. He dumped my, my mom. Well, he, he let my mom out. He dumped my mom. He let my mom out, and he said, stay in the car. And so we stayed in the car, and he went to the back of the church property. They got a big uh, bus shed back there and a lot of buses. And so he went back there where the woods were, and he whipped out his little pocket knife, and he cut off a limb, and you could just hear, you know, taking all the leaves off of it. And he did one of those oral moves, you know, you know, to find out, make sure it had uh, uh, a good aerodynamics. And he put that on my behind, and he wore me out. And he said, get back in the car. So I got back in the car. We drove back up to the parking lot. We got out, and uh, we were heading into church. And, of course, I'm about 10 paces behind my dad. Uh, and my dad walks in. The greeters are there. It's like, hey, Jim, how you going? Oh, man, great, you know. And, and to, to look at my dad, you would have no idea that we just had a major blowout in the car. You wouldn't have a clue. Now, of course, I'm dragging along behind him, and they look at me, and I'm walking a little bit funny. And they're like, yeah, okay, he's got problems. So just because you come to church and you seem to think that certain peoples have it all together and they are living the perfect life, hey, listen, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Oftentimes, you will find that they're going through some of the same struggles that you're going through. In fact, you may be surprised. They actually may look at your life and think, you know what? Man, I wish I had their life. I wish I had their life. Adam and Eve had a perfect life, right? They had the perfect relationship, right? I mean, you would think everything's going in their favor. That is until you turn the page. In Genesis chapter 3, it all falls apart. Even the perfect relationship had problems. Somebody look at my relationship with my wife. Here's a picture of my wife and I, in case you don't know who she is. And um, for those who may be unaware, my wife had back surgery earlier this year. And so I had to take care of her. And uh, I would make and provide meals for her. I would massage her back in the areas around the wound that, uh, just to help with the healing process. And I would assist her moving around in bed to help ease her pain. And I was there when she rang her little bell. I was there to beck and call and I said, yes, madam. You know, I was there for her. I took care of her. And some of you may be thinking, you know what? If I was ever in a position like that, if I had to be laid up for that length of time, I would love for somebody to come and wait on me and take care of me like that. We would long for something like that, right? Well, before you start vomiting at our Hallmark relationship, well, then you need to understand that sometimes we have some intense conversations. How many of you know what I'm talking about when I say intense conversations? That's preacher language for fight. Right? Sometimes we get in fights. It happens. I mean, just the other day, we got into a, uh, an intense conversation. I was in the bedroom, and my wife was on the other side of the house, and we began to yell and scream across the house, back and forth, back and forth, and then things got quiet. And my wife was there, standing at the bedroom door. And she got on her hands and knees. And she came crawling to me. And she looked me in my eyes. And she said, 
Get out from underneath the bed, you coward, and fight like a man. You don't mess with my wife. She's a tough cookie. So if you look at our relationship and you won't, you say, I want that. I want what you have. Well, first of all, I think it's important for you to understand what that is. You see, we've thrown things. We've slammed doors. We've said harmful things. One time I walked out of the house wondering if I'm going to have to find a place to stay for the night. We've hung up the phone on each other a few times in our 23 years of marriage. I punched walls. I burnt rubber going out of the driveway. You still want what we have? You still want what we have? Just because they stage those relationship photos on Facebook and Instagram doesn't mean it represents their relationship in its entirety. I am grateful that people are longing for something better, and we should be wanting something better. Uh, in society, there, there's mistrust, there's selfishness, there's differences of opinion regarding finances and religion and raising kids and, and time of recreation, time at work, roles and responsibilities. We can find a number of things that we can argue about that will separate us. So we should want something different than what we see in society. So I want to share with you over the next four weeks, four goals that we can apply to our relationships that will help you honor God. Four goals. Now, we talked about the foundation last week, week one. Now it's week two. This is the second uh, uh, sermon in this series, and we're going to be looking at Christ-centeredness today, being a Christian, calling yourself Christian. Being in a Christian relationship doesn't necessarily mean you're living a Christ-centered life. And then this, uh, next week, we're going to be looking at mission-driven uh, Mission-driven, oftentimes we allow things in our relationships to drive us in different direction. And so we want to be on the same page. We want to be moving to together in the same direction, so therefore we've got to have a common goal. So we want to be mission-driven. Also, we want to be devil-kicking. We understand that there's a battle going on. There's a battle for our marriages. There's a battle for our lives. It is, we don't battle against fresh, flesh and blood, but we get battle against principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness. Listen, our spouse is not our enemy. But we do have an enemy. And he hates everything that pertains to God. And he hates marriages because God ordained marriages. Everything that pertains to God, he hates. Then, of course, we have covenant keeping. We don't enter into a contract. We enter into a holy covenant. And we'll look at that in the weeks to come, how we can honor God through that. So let's review. What are we going to be in our relationships? We're going to be, say it with me, Christ-centered. We're going to be mission-driven. We're going to be devil-kicking, say it with attitude. There you go. And we want to be covenant-keeping. That's our goals for the next few months. And so we're going to be looking at Christ-centered here this morning. So what does it mean to be Christ-centered in our relationships and Christ-centered in our lives? That's an excellent question, and I hope it's a question that you ask yourself often. It's a great question, but before we can actually understand the answer to that question, one thing we need to understand is that no matter where we are relationally in our lives, our lives are centered around something or someone. Our lives are centered around something or someone. If you're married, our lives are centered around something or someone. If you're single, our lives are centered around something or someone. Now, if you are married, you may be married to someone else, but your marriage may be centered around you. It's what I want. It, it, it's, it's that you're not meeting my needs. 
I want to do what I want to do. It is centered around self. And oftentimes, you know who these people are. You can see them. How many times have you gone to take a photo of a bunch of people and you're about to upload it on Facebook and then somebody comes running around saying, wait, 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 wait. I got to look at that before you go and upload it. I got to make sure my hair is okay. I got to make sure you got my right side. Make sure my eyes are not closed. Around. You know who people, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you can see that self-centeredness in some, in some people. But oftentimes it's hard to see it within ourselves. We have a tendency to give ourselves a bit more grace than we're willing to give others. We set the bar high for others, but when it comes to ourselves, oh, we let ourselves slide a little bit, don't we? You know, she'll be all right. We just let it slide. But one of the major problems that we see in relationships today is selfishness. And I hear people say all the time, well, you know what? I want to be happy. I need to be happy. In fact, no, no, they go even further than that. They say, I have a right to be happy. I have a right to be happy. The thing is, happiness is dependent upon your outward circumstances. And so you can be happy, that is, until your circumstances change, and then you're going to hit rock bottom again. You're going to be happy, and then you're going to hit rock bottom again. And it's a constant cycle. We go, especially in relationships, we go and we look at other people and we think that our happiness can be fulfilled in them. And so we put that pressure on them that it's their job to make us happy. But oftentimes they get in that relationship and they're like, hey, look, I'm not in it for that. Because oftentimes they may be looking for their own happiness. And they find out that this relationship is just one-sided. And so they leave and then what do we do? We look for the next person that we want to make us happy. And it's an up and down cycle, time and time and time again. Listen, happiness depends on your circumstances. Joy, however, is from the inside, despite our outward circumstances. You can be going through a very difficult time and still have the joy of the Lord within you. And by the way, you don't have a right to be happy if it negatively impacts other people. You can't neglect your children just so you can go out and party and be happy. You can't go and have an affair because your spouse doesn't make you happy, but this other person does. Many marriages are centered around children. We talked a little bit about this last week. We're going to do what the child wants to do. We We won't invest in our marriage because we're investing in our kids. It's all about you, kids. We take them to all their activities. We spend time running around ensuring our kids' happiness. And then one day, when our kids leave home, we turn around. There's a stranger living in our house because we spent all of our time investing in our kids and never making time for our spouses. We're seeing an increase in the number of divorces among couples today because they just stay together for the kids. And then when the kids leave home, hey, all bets are off. They're gone. Some centered around money and material things, like success and the career and images. We want to, everybody to know how good we look on the outside, thinking they're going to they're gonna think that we, uh, they believe that we're going to be good on the inside. And so we show them outwardly that, and materially that, hey, look, all things are good. But, but in reality, inside of our hearts and inside of our home, they're, they're falling apart. Your relationship is centered around something or someone. There's a problem that I've noticed, and it regards this concept of the, 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 the one. The one. You know what I'm talking about? 
Oh, if I could just have the one, my life would be so much better. Oh, if I could find the one, my marriage would be perfect. Oh, if I could just find the one, then I could have that fairy tale life that I've always dreamed of, happily ever after. To really be fulfilled and happy in life, I need to find the one. Now, some may use a different name. They may talk about their soulmate. You heard that? If I just find my soulmate, everything will be great. Everything will be better. You, make that, you find that one that makes you tingly all over, that gives you all those goosebumps. The one that when you listen to songs, the love songs on the radio, oh, they just make so much sense now, don't they? Oh, yeah, I'm with you, brother. I feel it. Yeah. One that makes uh, your hair stand up on the back of your neck and your toes curl up and just makes you want to shout, Glory, hallelujah. I don't think you guys have experienced that before. You're lost. You have a girl. Sees this guy. And he's so cute. And she says, oh, I think he may be the one. He goes and opens up the door for her. Oh, I think she, he may be the one. He went to church back in the 90s. Oh, I think he may be the one. This guy's got a job, nine to five job, whereas her other three boyfriends wanted to be professional video players. Oh, he may be the one. And then it comes. This is what it comes. Listen. He just completes me. He completes me. My wish for people today is to realize you don't need another person to complete you. Single is a whole number. In fact, Jesus had a pretty good run of it, didn't he? He didn't have a wife. And he didn't have a problem pleasing his God. He pleased Jesus. God pleased him. He pleased God in a, in a massive way. We don't need another person to complete us. Christ completes us to enable us to do what he has called us to do. Christ completes us to enable us to do what he has called us to do. I was listening to a book the other day, and it was on relationships. And this guy goes and asks a question, and it, and it really just stayed with me throughout the day. He asked, what do you believe is your greatest need right now? What is your greatest need right now? And I was thinking about that. And so I went home and, and got in bed with my wife. And, and before we went to bed, I said, hey, I was listening to this book today. And the guy asked the question, what is your greatest need? And so I asked my wife, what is your greatest need? And she got to thinking about that for a little bit. She goes, well, I think probably my greatest need would be to be loved. But I know that you love me. And so probably that's really not my greatest need. My greatest need is for my back to quit hurting. I said, fair enough. And uh, so, you know, she's still recovering from her back surgery. And so she's thinking about, you know, her back at this time. But if I were to ask this question to all of you and, and, and to society as a whole, and I would say, what is your greatest need? I bet many of you would probably say, I just want to be loved. 
My greatest need is to be loved. Now, if you're here today and if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you haven't experienced the love of Jesus Christ, then that is your greatest need. Your greatest need is to be loved. And I want you to understand here this morning that Jesus Christ does love you. In fact, he went to the cross. He died for you so that you can have salvation so that, because he wants you to spend eternity in heaven with him. And so your greatest need is to be loved. And I hope you will experience that in your life before you leave here today. But for those of us who are saved, who have experienced the love of Jesus Christ, your greatest need is not to be loved, but to learn how to love. If you approach your relationships with this attitude, then it will change the way in which you see your spouse. It will change the way in which you deal with your spouse. Instead of looking at them to provide you what you think you need, instead, you look at them where they're at, and there's an opportunity for you to love them right where they're at. Sometimes one of the ways God teaches us to love is to put, around, put us around people who are unlovable. I mean, if he puts us around people who love us, that's easy. Anybody can love somebody who's going to love them back. But loving an uncaring spouse is more difficult. Loving an angry spouse is hard. Loving a spouse that's hard to get along with will test your resolve. But each one of these is an opportunity for you to learn how to love. This is the danger of looking for someone to complete you. This is the danger of looking for, looking for the one. So I would love it when you meet the person that you think you want to spend the rest of your life with, instead of saying, oh, I think I have found the one, instead you say, I think I have found the two. Because in a Christ-centered relationship, Jesus is your one. Your spouse is your two. When our marriages are centered around Christ, it's not just in word or in deed. Our marriages is all about Jesus. Everything else is underneath that. There was a guy that was having a conversation with Jesus. And he asked him a question. Let's pick it up in verse 36 of Matthew chapter 22. He says, uh, talking to Jesus, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And later on, in other scriptures, it said, with all of your strength. Notice the word all there. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws of the prophets. If we were to go and have two columns and we were to put in front of one the, the, the you know, God, loving God and we were to put in the other one loving others, you can take all of the Ten Commandments and place them in one of those two columns. But the first thing we do is to put God first. We are to love God first. He is the center of all that we do. He is the most important thing in our lives. Why is it important? Because all of us, for all of us, there is something or someone in the center of our lives that control how we live. Notice this diagram here. Notice we have a core there. It's a question mark. But whatever that core is, that core drives your values and your beliefs, which then influences your actions and decisions, which ultimately lead to your influence and impact. The difference you make in this world and how, you, how your life honors God is dependent upon what you put in the center 
of your life, what your life centers around. If your life centers around self, well, then I can promise you, you're going to be very limited in the impact you can have on your world because it's not going to go any farther than you. And you're not going to have any friends because eventually people are going get to get tired of hearing you talking about yourself, and so you're going to have a very limited impact. If it's, a, if it's about your kids, then ultimately your marriage will suffer and you won't be able to, to please and honor God because everything's going to be revolving around your kid, your actions, your decisions, and your influence won't go beyond your kids. It could be your lifestyle, how you live your life, wanting other people to see you as good. However, if you are looking for something better, your life could be centered around your life could be centered around Christ. And when you are centered, when you are Christ-centered, Christ drives your values and belief. It drives us into the Word of God for us to study, for us to understand the principles in the Bible so that we can create our values and belief. We see the teachings of Christ, and that has an impact on our values and belief. And, of course, our values and, and beliefs will then lead to our actions and decisions, and we make actions and decisions based on those values and beliefs. And sometimes those actions and decisions are contrary to our society and to our culture. But they're based on our values and our beliefs, so therefore we have the courage to stand up and do those. And in doing so, it allows us to have an impact and influence on people in our lives. It allows us to be able to, to reach people for Jesus Christ because they see Jesus in us. Allow Christ to be the center of your relationships. And if he's not the center, if anything is in there but Christ, then you have the wrong goal driving your relationships. Now, for those who are not married, you're single. But yet, you see these relationship goals and you say, yeah, Dwayne, you know what? I want that. I want that for my relationship. I want my relationships in the future to be Christ-centered. Well, listen, if you want a Christ-centered relationship in the future, then live a Christ-centered life today. If you want a Christ-centered relationship in the future, then live a Christ-centered life today. If you want to honor God by putting him first in a future marriage, then honor God by giving him first place in your life today. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And I see and I hear people talk about, well, Dwayne, you don't understand. You know, I, I, I just want to live my life right now. I just want to do what I want to do. Whenever I find the one, and whenever I'm ready to settle down, then I'll worry about all that Christian stuff. Then I'll worry about getting religion. Then I'll worry about going to church. Then I'll worry about getting Christ-centered life. But right now, this is my time, and I want to do what I want to do. I want to be about my needs. I'm going to party, and I'm going to live it up until I get tied down. Let me explain something to you, friend. Anytime you do something apart, apart from God, it's called sin. And you don't build a life of righteousness in the future on a foundation of sin today. You don't build a life of righteousness in the future on a foundation of sin today. If you want that in the future, embrace it today. I'm not waiting for someone to complete me before I start serving Jesus. Listen, I'm serving Jesus today. There's a big difference in calling yourself a Christian and living a Christ-centered life. You don't build a life of righteousness in the future on the foundation of sin today. So how do we do it? How do we do it? 
how do we live a Christ-centered marriage? Well, look, I'm tempted, uh, and in the past I'd be very tempted to go and just give you a whole list of things that you need to do in order to be Christ-centered in your relationship. Things like, you know, you need to pray every day. You need to read your Bible every day. Go to church each week. Forgive each other. Spend time together. Serve together. Submit to one another. And I can go and give you this whole list of things, and you're going to walk out of here and not remember any of them, probably not do any of them. So I want to change my strategy a little bit here this morning. Instead of giving you a whole bunch of things to focus on as you leave here this morning, I want to give you one action. One thing I want you to do in your relationships that I believe will give you the highest return on your investment and actually will lead you to those things I just mentioned. The one action that can lead you to have a Christ-centered marriage is praying together. Praying together. You commit to praying together daily. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't need to be, you don't need to pray a sermon. One action that can lead to all other actions that will give you a Christ-centered relationship is praying together. And if you're not married, you can already get into the habit of praying each day. And then when you do go out for that significant other, before you go out on a date, before you leave the, the, the driveway, you stop and you pray together. In fact, that might be the very thing that may keep your marriage pure as you spend time praying together before you go out on a date. As we are talking about prayer, I'm going to ask the musicians to come on up. Because I am willing to bet that there is some here today, and you're thinking, oh, man, i got to go and pray with my spouse now. You know, oh, I, I wish I, I, I'd skip church today. Well, let me tell you, I promise you, you can pray together. You can pray together. And you say, but it's too personal. It's too private. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say. I promise you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and your spouse knows Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can pray today. I know you can. I assure you you can. And you say, well, Dwayne, you just don't understand. It's just too private. It's too intimate. Hang on. Let's get real here for just a moment, shall we? And this is maybe just maybe a little bit embarrassing, but I'm going to say it anyway. Some of you that have been married for any length of time, you probably go to the toilet in front of each other. And there is nothing, I think, more private than going to the toilet. In fact, in my house, every time I go to the toilet, my wife thinks, hey, that's a great time for having an audience with you. And so there is no privacy in my house. Some of you have had babies together. Hey, look, that takes a little bit of intimacy going on, does it not? You swap spit among other things. That's it's intimacy. So for you to say that you can't pray together because it's too private, it's too intimate, I'm sorry, I don't buy that. I promise you, you can pray together if you're willing to. Think about prayer. Prayer is one of the greatest untapped resources among marriages today. It can create real spiritual strength in your lives. It can create real spiritual strength in your relationships. And if I was the enemy, I would try to do everything I possibly could to keep you from praying together. Because I know if you're not praying together, then you're not going to be bound spiritually. 
It will, do, it, will, it will destroy your relationship. I can keep you from being mission-driven because I know you're not going to be praying. And if you're not going to be praying, you definitely won't be doing any devil kicking. The devil will have you right where he wants you. And we don't have to worry about keeping our covenant over here. Why? Because we're not Christ-centered. We're not Christ-centered. When you pray together, you bond. It is really hard to do bad things when you and your spouse are praying together. It's really difficult to go and have a fight knowing that you're going to have to pray together with your spouse very soon. And maybe there's some of you, maybe you're really struggling in your relationships. Maybe some of you have some, have some issues going on, ongoing issues like lust and pornography in your relationship. Listen, it's hard to go and look at porn and then get into, wife, get, get into to bed with your spouse and have a prayer time with her or him knowing that they have been so incredibly faithful to you. It empowers you to work through some of those issues so that you can truly have intimacy in your relationships. When you pray, it leads to other actions that allow you to strengthen your marriage around Christ. You may end up talking about spiritual things together after you go and pray. You may uh, uh, move your kids towards spiritual things after you pray. You may start having devotions after you pray together. Chances are you'll be coming to church together. You might even start serving together. You may start being mission-minded together. And you're under, when you're under spiritual attack, you begin to fight the enemy together. And the covenant that you made together between you and your spouse and God becomes stronger because you have been Christ-centered. For those of you who are praying with your spouse, I commend you. I applaud you here this morning. Thank you for making your marriage so important to you that you're willing to pray with your spouse together. Thank you for keeping your marriage Christ-centered. But for those who aren't praying with your spouse, for those who may struggle with praying with your spouse, I want to give you a few tips here this morning. First of all, keep it short. Keep it short. This is not a time for an hour intercessory prayer. I mean, look, just start with 60 seconds. And if you can't do 60 seconds, do 30 seconds. Eventually, God will be able to bring things. Once you get in the habit, God will bring things to mind so that you can pray about those things. And chances are, they're probably things that revolve around your relationship with your wife or with your husband. And you begin to pray for those things. And for, before you know it, you'll be praying for two minutes. And then before you know it, you'll be praying for an hour. But you're not going to pray two minutes tomorrow if you can't pray 30 seconds today. So let me encourage you, just start. Start praying together. Maybe just, just, just start by praying, Lord, help us keep our relationship centered on you. Start with that. And then build upon that as you continue to pray together. Secondly, keep it consistent. In other words, we're going to pray at a certain time every single day. This is our time. We're going to protect it. We're not going to let anything uh, get in the way of our time of praying together. Now, some of you with kids, 
Maybe you need to do it early in the morning while the kids are still in bed or late at night when they go to bed. Or maybe you want to do it around a meal or a prayer, have a prayer time be before or after a meal. But whatever it is, be consistent. Do it on a regular basis. Keep it short. Keep it consistent. And also, number three, if you miss a day, because you will, there are things that come up we can't control, and sometimes we will miss a day. But if you miss a day, you make a commitment to each other that you won't miss two. If you miss one day, don't miss two. Because if you miss two, it's going to be a lot easier to miss three. And it's going to be easier to miss four. And if you miss one week, you'll miss two weeks. Miss one month, you'll miss two months. And then pretty soon, you're going to get out of the habit. And your relationships will no longer be centered around Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior here this morning, then it's going to be very difficult for you to have a Christ-centered relationship if you don't have Christ in your heart. So let me encourage you here this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your greatest need right now is to experience the love of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for you. His blood was shed for you. He paid for your sins so that you can have a relationship with Him. He wants you to experience heaven with Him throughout all eternity. And the only way that that's going to happen is by accepting Him as your Lord and Savior. And so if you would like more information on that, you can see myself or Michael or anybody here, we'd love the opportunity to sit down with you and share with you what the Scripture says about your relationship with God. Fill out a connection card. We'll come by and see you sometime. Call you up. Go out for a coffee. But that's your greatest need right here this morning is to come and know Jesus Christ as your Savior. For those who know Christ, this is an opportunity to learn how to love. So let me encourage you, no matter what you're going through in your relationship, look at it from that perspective. How can I love my spouse even in the circumstances that we're in? We want our relationship goal is to make our relationships centered on Christ here this morning. So as we go out this week, ask yourself, how can I make my life Christ-centered? How can I make my relationship more Christ-centered? And then listen for God's answer to that question. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our time together. And Lord, as we think about all that you've done for us, and how you've encouraged us. And how you've given us everything we need, Lord. In order to have good, godly relationships. Lord, it starts with us being Christ-centered. And so I pray, Lord, that as we go out of here this morning. That we will learn to be Christ-centered in all that we do. In Jesus' name we do pray.